Welcome to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast. Conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now, here are your hosts, Ed Stetzer and Daniel Yang. Welcome to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast, where we're helping Christian leaders navigate and lead through the cultural issues of our day. My name is Daniel Yang, the director of the Church Multiplication Institute. And today we're talking to Michael Graham and Jim Davis. Michael is the program director for the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics associate pastor at Orlando Grace Church, executive director of the D-Church D Initiative, and executive director of the podcast As in Heaven. He's more jobs than I have. He's got a lot of, he's got a lot right. of hats. Right. Jim is teaching pastor at Orlando Grace Church, the host of As in Heaven podcast, and serves as a writer for the D-Church Initiative. He and his wife, Angela, speak for Family Life's Weekend to Remember Marriage Getaways. Their new book, written with Ryan Burge, is The Great D-Churching, Who's Leaving?, why are they going and what will it take to bring them back? But before we talk to Michael and Jim, we want to remind you that if you're enjoying our interviews, leave us a review. Now let's go to Ed Stetzer, Editor-in-Chief of Outreach Magazine and the incoming Dean at the Talbot School of Theology. So, uh, okay, so so uh, writing books with big statistical claims, words like great in them, um, always gets my interest and my attention and sometimes my concern. Um, I, I'm sort of known, matter of fact, I just finishing up an article. You remember the article a few years ago where those bad pastor stats were out there that, mm -hmm. you know, 80% of pastors don't have a single friend and 40% of pastors had an adulterous relationship. I mean, they were just crazy. And they were on this website, uh, still on this website, um, uh, where at this, uh, it listed as its institute. You can actually find it like the Francis Schaefer Institute, it's called. Um, and so I just named it right here. And because I'm finishing writing this article up. And all the stats just don't make any sense. And yet pastors quote them. I was in England at a pastor's conference and the pastor's pastor gets up and he says that, you know, he, he cites these things and they actually, they've backed up a little bit, but they still have all the sites on their web, uh, all the stats on their webpage. It really is demoralizing to pastors. And so I get concerned, you know, I wrote an article for USA Today when some of the news stories talk about Christianity's dying. And uh, I think it was based on the Pew Forum landmark study they do every seven years. And and USA Today picked the title, Survey Fail. You know, that's what they call the Survey Fail. Christianity is not dying. So, and again, I, I, I do this in different places, right? CNN, I've written Washington Post several times. So I get concerned. So when I heard about this book, um, I think Michael uh, emailed it to me or somebody through, eventually through Michael, because I knew his name. Uh, he wrote a helpful article that I've been uh, using and writing a book on the future of evangelicalism. And so I get the book and I'm a little skeptical. I reach out, I actually reach out to Ryan Burge, who, you know, he's done some work for us, mm -hmm. uh, contract work for us, and we do some of the stuff together with Glue. Turns out he and Michael are BFFs, so I don't get to, like, you know, confidentially ask Ryan, but that's another story for another day. So Ryan's like, no, this is, and Ryan is, uh, you know, he's got a new book coming out in religion. He's at Eastern Illinois University, good researcher. He's kind of the guy, you're, everyone's seen his little charts he posts all the time. He's in mm -hmm. the congressional study all the time. So he's like, okay, good. So then I get the book, and I, I want to walk through it. And, um, and, I, and I like some of the nuance that's there. So, uh, so what does Ed Stetzer think about the book? Well, I endorsed it. So this morning at the time of this recording, I sent in my endorsement, not that my endorsement is the end all or be all, but I did want to say coming onto the program that when it comes to statistical, uh, stuff, we don't have on the program folks that, that, that I'm not comfortable with. Cause that's part of what my, my job is to help figure this out. That's a very long introduction, but I want you to, uh, to know that there's some, I, I might word some things differently. We're going to talk about that. But there is uh, some shifting going on. Churn, we're going to call, I'll, I'll use the word churn on more than one occasion. But let's jump in with the authors. First, let's hear from Michael. And Michael, um, a project like this, one of the key things is scope. It's, um, 
what are you trying to answer? Because you answer too much, you don't really get there. You answer too little. What's the point of the book? What's the scope of the book and why did you write it? Yeah, so we conducted a three-phase survey. survey. Um, the first phase of that survey was, was basically to figure out how many dechurched adults are there in America and what areas are worth kind of zooming in on. So we did, then we did a second phase study, and the goal of that second phase was to compare and contrast the differences and similarities between churched and dechurched persons from all religious traditions. What we saw from that second study um, warranted further zooming in, and we wanted to get uh, additional data on what was going on uh, with a high degree of granularity among evangelical dechurched in particular. So those were the um, those were the three phases of the study. What we learned from the highest altitude from that first phase was that there were about 40 million adult Americans who used to go to church um, who now don't uh, don't go at all anymore. So de-church for us is defined as somebody who goes who used to go to church at least once per month and now less than once per year. And so about 15% adult Americans fit that category of used to go at least once per month regularly, now less than once per year. Most of that de-churching has happened in the last 25 to 30 years. And uh, the shape of that de-churching began uh, initially with the main lines in the 1980s, and then the Catholics were kind of next. And then uh, a lot of that was kind of happening more on the secular left than it was um, more recently among de-churched evangelicals, which takes shape a little bit more on the secular right. Um, starting uh, with the acceleration of that dechurching more in the mid 1990s, mid late 1990s to, to present, um, and uh, yeah. So, uh, Jim, let me let me come to you real quick because again, so the idea of dechurched is uh, used to attend church at least once a month, but now no longer. Um, can you give us an idea of like who are they? Like, give us an overview of who is leaving. Well, that's what we wanted to see. I mean, so so when we set this out, we did this for Orlando. We live in Orlando where Ed grew up, as I've more recently learned. Well, you grew up in New York and spent your teenage years here. And Orlando, we, we knew anecdotally that that the most of the people we did ministry with used to go to church and no longer do. And and we in our As in Heaven podcast, we didn't want to just have anecdotal evidence. We wanted to commission a true sociologist in Ryan Burge to be able to help us to understand st quantitatively what we're looking at. And so th the very beginning, we wanted to prove or disprove this thesis, which we'll get to your great language later, Ed, but um, we are currently in the largest and fastest religious shift in the history of our country. And we proved it. And then through the successive studies that Mike was talking about, we were able to understand by entering all this data into what's called machine learning that, 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 that Mike can, and Ryan can explain a lot better than me, but we were able to produce five different profiles of de-churched people, five very distinct profiles. So backing up a little bit, we realized that, okay, the de-churched first separate into one of two categories that we call the, the casually de-churched or the de-churched casualties. The casually de-churched are, are what it sounds like. They didn't intentionally de-church. They moved to Orlando or some other city and just got busy and got new rhythms. And, and maybe they still have a value for church, but they decided they weren't going to go anymore. Maybe their kids got into teenage years, athletics took over, travel sports. COVID obviously greatly increased this casually de-churched uh, group where people got used to not going to church for 6, 12, 18 months, depending on the state that you lived in and then just didn't come back. 
so that's the casualty side, the casualty side, there is an actual pain point. Uh, you know, we talk in our podcast a lot with Justin Holcomb, our mutual friend, about uh, these specific pain points of pastoral falls, politics, sexual ethics, abuse in the church, things like that. So there is a pain point. So you have those two categories, and then you have the five uh, five groupings for our evangelical de-church groupings, and then we've lumped Roman Catholics and mainline together because they, they, they're, they're pretty much almost identical. So who's leaving? Those would be the categories that I haven't, we haven't explained in depth. We do in the podcast and the book. But the hope is, and we're beginning to do some seminars here in our own church, is that people could have these categories and in about five questions understand, oh, this is who I'm looking at. Because depending on why somebody stopped going to church, that's going to influence how we minister to them. Now, lastly, let me introduce caveats. Obviously, um, God is in control of it all. We believe he's doing the work. You know, Nobody's going to worship him without a regenerative act on his part in our hearts. He is going to keep his sheep. But at the, and at the same time, he told us there would be weeds you know, among the wheat that we should not be surprised when there are people who look like they are in the kingdom and they are not. And so certainly some of this is just revealing what, uh, what is already true, you know, spiritually speaking. Having said that, the, the study has been very encouraging about who it is that, that's leaving and among big parts of them, their willingness to come back. Yeah, and I think it's, um, you know, people should know that the the book, by the way, the book is The Great Dechurching, Who's Leaving, Why They're Going, and What Will Take to Bring Them Back, that Orlando is an illustration, but don't get distracted that you think that Orlando's the focus of it. But for me, it really connects because, you know, we, uh, New York City sort of went bankrupt. So my my dad was a Union Iron Lather, my grandfather, fire battalion chief. Anyway, so anyway, everyone just sort of moved to Florida. It was kind of the law there for my grandfather when he retired. And but we moved there. We didn't have anything. We lived in a house in Orlando without air conditioning. We had a big fan that they said would suck all the, the warm air out. And it did. It just brought new warm air in. But anyway, um, and, you know, public assistance at times. And yet heard the gospel there um, and ca- came to faith in Christ at, uh, at uh, you know, a, a little charismatic Episcopal church, a good shepherd there in Maitland, uh, then went out to be part of a church plant with Greg Brewer, who's now the bishop of the Diocese of Central Florida Church of the New Covenant in uh, Winter Springs. And um, in all that, man, it was a booming religious environment. So I would go, so this old church plant grew to hundreds, hundreds. I mean, my first job was I was the sexton, S-E-X-T-O-N, of this Episcopal church. It basically meant I was the janitor. Um, and but, but this church blew up in size. And, we, and I was going every Tuesday night to Calvary Assembly, which is this huge building that you drive by. It's got 5,000 seats in it. And I talked to the pastor there. It's mostly empty, used for venues. Um, the, I mean, it was this bastion. We, we used to do this thing. Now these festivals have sort of declined. We used to go to these things called Jesus Orlando and tens of thousands of people would come. I was there with my girl, uh, you know, in, in high school. And, and today you go back and, you know, some people, my friend, Steve Childers and others calls, uh, you know, Orlando, the, the graveyard of church planning, even after vision 360, which, you know, Al Weiss and everyone is going to plant these churches. And so I, I do find it interesting because it's not everyone's experience everywhere, but Orlando in some cases could be a bellwether of what's to come and in some ways what's coming. Um, all right. So but one of the things that I, I early on wanted to see is um, we have, um, you know, you know, again, we talked about 40 million. It's not that they've surveyed 40 million people. That's, that's an important distinction. But 40 million people through representative sampling would project to be 40 million people. Now, if 40 million people leave a church, 
Does that mean there are 40 million less people? What's the churn that's going on? Talk to us a little bit about that. We'll throw that to Michael and then and, and either one of you can weigh in. So what, what, what does that mean? Are we just 40 million less? Are we 40 million smaller? Well, obviously, you have a lot of complex factors of things like immigration, um, people who you know have children and raise them, you know, in the church. So you have all the different you know demographics of population shifts and those different kinds of things. Um, if you read the the most recent you know Southern Baptist Convention report, obviously their membership numbers are, are down about four hundred thousand from you know the year before. Largest um, decline just- in history. Yep, we just crossed um, about about two years ago the fifty percent mark of you know where fifty percent of Americans, more than fifty percent of Americans for for decades and decades, um, went to uh, uh, church, um, and so usually those figures were were hovering around the seventy you know seventy percent of Americans you know went to church for the large part of the twentieth century, um, and even into a little bit into the early. Uh, 21st century, but now those figures have uh, have gone below 50% now. So, you know, in terms of how many people are, you know, are churched in America, it is now in active decline in terms of, um, you know, that de-churching is, is definitely impacting, you know, the total, the total volume of people who are going to church. So you're, you're talking to pastors and church leaders on this podcast and, um, can, can you help them understand, like, why are people leaving the church? Uh, you, you talked about first the mainline decline and then also the Catholic decline and evangelicalism probably is, is holding steady, but also maybe, maybe seeing, you mentioned Southern Baptist, uh, a little bit of, uh, disenrollment maybe, but, but what's the reason why you're finding people are actually leaving and just stopping attending church altogether? So historically, it's really interesting to go back to the Cold War because the end of the Cold War it was a critical impetus in de-churching. So the 1990s were this this really um, pivotal moment for the de-churching crisis that we're experiencing. So in the before the fall of the Soviet Union, to be American was to be Christian. I mean, my my you know, if you talk to people a little bit older than us, you know, if somebody said, I'm not a Christian, it was not uncommon for people then to ask, well, are you a communist? I mean, it was just such a jump that seems weird now, but it was under the Eisenhower administration, not coincidentally, that in God we trust was added to our money, under God was added to the pledge, because there, our government wanted to perpetuate this idea that to be American is to be Christian. And we're fighting this battle against this atheistic evil over on the other side of the world. So when the Soviet Union fell, there was now freedom to say, I'm to to be both American and not Christian. So that was a really important thing that contributed to the de-churching. Then of course, the rise of the internet, people don't really attribute a lot of that to the nineties, but in 1994 was when you had your first internet cafes opening. That's when you could go, you know, on your own and begin to research views that are different that when, than what you grew up with. Most libraries and public schools by the end of the nineties had access to the internet. And then you had the, this, this polarization, this political and religious polarization where there's a lot of overlap that really contributed to people saying, gosh, if I have to choose between these extremes, I just think I'm out. So the 1990s was incredibly pivotal to, uh, to what's going on. Um, you know, Ryan Burge has done a lot of really good work on, on the Trump era and, and its contribution, uh, COVID and its contribution. 
But again, they really, uh, there's more freedom in our society now to, to be, to say you're not Christian or to say I'm a Christian, but my, my spirituality is private and, and I'm just, I don't need the church that I'm baptized into. Um, and so you, you have, those are larger historical narratives that have happened in addition to the casually de-churching and the de-church casualties that we've mentioned. What's interesting, here's a reason, I think this is a really interesting thing that Burge did a lot of work on, we commissioned him to do, uh, affirms this. What's not causing people to leave the church is higher secular education. So it is, it is, it, you are much more, the, the more educated a Christian is, the more likely you are to continue in the faith. I, I think it's only 3% of evangelicals with a, a master's degree have actually de-churched. So I, I think that's important to say in the conversation, that's not the contributing boogeyman that we've made it out to be uh, over the past 40 years or whatever. Yeah, this has been something that that they talked about in the UK for a while. C.S. Lewis wrote about this and others, is that um, in the centers of education and learning, they actually have, uh, I mean, I don't know if they've done well. Britain's a very secular environment, but it's actually in poorer and uneducated and rural areas, not that those three always correlate together, that they, they've struggled to reach the, the the common man, I think is what uh, one author said. Okay, so just, just for clarity on a couple of things. Um, when we're talking about being in the 70s, the the peak of church membership was uh, late 40s at 76%, and now we're down to 47%. If I'm just going by the Gallup, the Gallup numbers. So membership has experienced that decline, um, whereas attendance has um, has actually not experienced that collapse, right? In 1939, 1940, it was about 41% of Americans said that last week they attended church uh, or synagogue or mosque. And today, it's it's at about 30, uh, I'm looking at my chart here, 30%. So that's, don't misunderstand, that's 10% less. That's a big deal. But we want to also temper that what we're talking about is, is n- nobody in re- nobody does real research believes that American Christianity is collapsing um, or dying, you know. But the reality is, is there are some significant troubling trends. The rise of the nuns has caught all the news. And I think, I could be wrong, but I think your phrase, the great dechurching will catch on. Because I do think it is a great number of people who have dechurched over the last few decades. Uh, um, you, it's important to note you mentioned early on it was when, when I did the first analysis of this. There was a very strong correlation from disidentifying as a Christian to disidentifying from mainline Protestantism. Now that's shifted some, so we're seeing those shifts take place. Okay, so so you, but you also you set a kind of a positive note. You set a positive note in this, that there's potential to reach them. I, I would also remind us that there is churn and people are being reached. You know, I, I people, I knew people who didn't drop out of church, but who never were in church. We, you know, the Molly Worthen podcast was got a lot of people's attention in, uh, in, in, in around the interwebs. So, um, so, so there's churn, but the churn is churning down and that's the key. So there is a great de-churching, some people coming in, but more people going out yet you you set an encouraging note let's go to michael first let's have both of you address it let's go to michael first how can you be encouraged in those kinds of situations well the single most encouraging thing about um this entire research is that well over half the people that we surveyed are willing to actively return to church today and many of those people actually believe that they will um so 
we've kind of categorized folks in one of three buckets in our own minds, just kind of pastorally and a little bit in the book. Of there, it's, It looks like in the data, there's people who just need a little bit of a nudge to return to church. Um, these are people that probably, if you text them, um, they'll probably come to, you know, hey, I'm going to come by your, you know, can I come by your, you know, your house, you know, on the Sunday and, you know, take you to church with me. Like, there's a large degree of people that fit that first, first category of they just need a nudge. There's a second group of people that probably need your dinner table. Um, and that group just needs, um, they just need some movement into their life from just from a relational intimacy standpoint. And those folks look like, yeah, they're very willing to return to church. They just need to have some some questions answered and need to um, ha have some experiences that are maybe a little bit better with people who are associated with, you know, church going folks. And then there's kind of a third category of people who probably aren't going to return to church for a wide variety of reasons. But um, it's good to, you know, I, I, I'm of the personal opinion that I don't like to shim relationships um, based on any kind of ex external factors or decisions that people make. So I think it's good to stay in people's lives. But I think that the good news, though, is that, you know, of those 40 million people, um, uh, over 20 million of them are, are willing to return to church today. And the reasons why that they said are very, you know, by and large, very reasonable. You know, in many ways, they just want to have um, better relationships um, interpersonally with other individuals. And then they want to be connected to healthier institutions. So I think those are the two big categories of, you know, places where we have opportunity to learn and grow and do better. And just, you know, it's relational wisdom on the interpersonal standpoint, and it's building churches and institutions that, um, that promote a, a gospel that's true, good, and beautiful all at the same time. If we do those things, lots of people are going to return like, millions and millions of them. So um, that, that's where there's just tremendous hope. And most of those things that just kind of outline, you know, do better, you know, be better, you know, in terms of relational wisdom and build healthier churches. Well, those are things that are within our control. So that's good news. You know, what I'm hearing from this conversation is uh, there are a lot of people that are leaving or, or leaving cultural Christianity, um, but maybe not yet fully immersed in convictional Christianity. I don't, maybe it's important to nuance that. And, and, and Jim, so maybe you can speak to this. Like, do you think it's important to, to nuance a way like people aren't deconverting or deconstructing at the high rates that maybe we're seeing people leaving the church because they're leaving cultural Christianity. Is it worth nuancing that? Because I, I do see the evangelistic opportunity if people are just leaving what you just said, Jim, uh, or, or Michael, uh, you know, they want better, healthy institutions. It seems to me that there's a, a great opportunity for evangelism. Uh, if we can recognize that people are leaving cultural Christianity, what, what are your thoughts around that, Jim? Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, I think you're exactly right. And that's why we've chosen the language, the great de-churching, because that doesn't, we can't call it the great deconversion. Only about a quarter are really done from our research. And, and if, when you focus on, in on de-church evangelicals, their orthodoxy scores, depending on the, the particular primary doctrine, whether it's the divinity of Jesus, inspiration of scripture, the, the core doctrines that we have, de-church evangelicals scored higher than those who still go to church. And now, of course, that includes mainline Roman Catholic, things like that. But all signs point to them still being Christians. So we we believe there's just there's a great discipleship opportunity so 
you know, there, I think of people who, well, let me do this. You have the, the old sociological categories of belief, belong, and behave. With this group, where they really feel belonging is in the belonging category. Their belief and behavior, a lot of them, they're, they're, they match and in some cases are better uh, than those who are still going to church. But they feel the belonging that was so clear in our research. They might not know exactly why they feel what they feel. Um, the way that I've thought about it, I lived in Europe for five years, and we would every now and then have the opportunity to go back to uh, go on to a U.S. Air Force base or Army base. And when you, the moment you step back on, you know, the sirens make the right noise and you have pizza huts and fine establishments like Taco Bell and free refills. And it just looks American. And even though you're, you're thousands of miles from home, you feel like you're home. And that's what worship is made to be. We're, we're, we're not, it's the already not yet. And there's a, there's a belonging that we long for in our souls that God has created for us, especially for Christians. And so there's a discipleship opportunity that, that a church in Columbia, Missouri called the Crossing and EPC Church who really gave us, they, they, this, <laughs> this research was expensive and they greatly assisted us in funding this research. So we gave them the executive summary. And they looked at this discipleship opportunity and they looked for the lowest hanging fruit that Mike was talking about. The people who no, not only know they should go back, believe they will go back. And they created a campaign to identify them and invite them back in just a few months. They have hundreds of new people worshiping with them who were formerly de-churched. So with a group of people, if we know how to identify them, I think the discipleship opportunities are, are really great. Fascinating. Okay. So, and important as well. The um, Okay. So I, I think it's probably worth uh, nuancing or detailing uh, some of what what Daniel said, you guys have already talked about as well. Let me remind everybody that the title of the book is The Great Dechurching, Who's Leaving? Why Are They Going? And What Will It Take to Bring Them Back? So that The Great Dechurching is not, and this is part of the challenge, is that we conflate things. We see the news, particularly the Christian news, of deconversion. And there might be, uh, you know, the sons of uh, or daughters of prominent Christian leaders. And, and so so we see that. And there's been some of that. You know, my our, our colleague here at, at Wheaton, Michael Lee, wrote, had him write an article for Outreach Magazine. He did his PhD dissertation on missionaries and pastors who've deconverted. So uh, that that's a real thing. Don't don't misunderstand. That really happens. That statistically is small in the context of the whole. And, um, you know, many people are dechurching had loose bonds to start with. One of the things I've talked about, I won't have time to go through it all, but if you're interested, you can go to my Outreach Magazine column on the thirds and the, the of, of church post-COVID. The back third of the church, if we see them as the least involved, they were the loosely connected and they mostly disconnected during, particularly if you're in a high shutdown state in the last few years. So loosely connected people have become mostly disconnected. And that's a pattern that we see recurring. But they didn't leave mad in many cases. They didn't leave hurt in many cases. Uh, there are cases that left mad and they left hurt and they changed their, their theological view. So can you look at this 40 million people and give us sort of broad, and this is U.S., by the way, for those of you listening, uh, there'll be similar numbers in other countries. But keep in mind, the U.S. has a high religiosity. So the numbers would be some ways different than Canada. It's kind of post some of these things. Australia, we have listeners around the world. But in the U.S. context with 40 million people, Kind of look at what are some of those categories, chunks of people. You do that in the book. What are some of the chunks of people that how you would describe these leaders? Yeah, so great question. So of the 40 million people who have, you know, stopped going to houses of worship and 
you know, in the United States, about 15 million of them roughly are leaving evangelical contexts. And then within that, um, we have four different profiles and those profiles can break down to basically um, the first profile is about half of the people who left. These are people that we, we called cultural Christians. Um, these are people that do not look regenerate from a doctrinal standpoint. Only 1% of them said that um, Jesus is the son of God. The second group, um, that's about 8 million people. The second group is uh, mainstream de-church evangelicals. These people look very orthodox. They only de-churched in the, like the last three or four years. Um, 98% of them say that Jesus is the son of God. Their orthodox, uh, orthodoxy score on stuff like Nicene Christianity is even higher than people that still go to church. A hundred percent of this group are willing to return to church today. Um, the third group are uh, what we call ex-evangelicals. This group also has a very high orthodoxy score, but they, um, this group is very allergic to racism, misogyny, um, church abuse, sexual abuse, these different kinds of things. Um, uh, this group um, has more of that church hurt and are more of the kind of de-churched casualties that, you know, that Jim alluded to before. About of the 30 million people, or of the 40 million people, about 30 million of them de-churched casually and about 10 million de-churched uh, from a casualty standpoint. Zero percent of this group are willing to return to an evangelical church, but many of them actually are willing to return to a different expression of the faith. Some have deconverted, but by and large, most of them still look like, um, at least from a doctrinal standpoint, look pretty uh, relatively orthodox. And then there's a fourth group that's really interesting. Um, we didn't let our algorithm, you know, the machine learning algorithm see ethnicity, but, um, you know, there's a long shadow in the data and the uh, there's a group that's 100% um, non-white that's the bipoc de church group um fascinating group highest income highest education of any of the groups um and this this group de churched a long time ago uh, very male as well so there's over a million over a million african-american men in this group they de churched around y2k average income you know over two hundred thousand dollars a year um you know highest degrees really interesting group in terms of you know who they are why they left so those are those are just some of the you know kind of the high bullet points. If you're, inter if you're interested in any of that at all, um, the best place I can you know you know before the book comes out, um, I can point you to um, a podcast episode that we recorded and published on May eighth, um, season three, episode two of the podcast "As in Heaven." That's a podcast done by you know Jim and I and, and two other members. Yeah, let me team. just say that we can we'll put that in the in the link for the show notes as well, Perfect. so people can. I'll, I'll say that this is the podcast that Michael recommended. Yeah, yeah. This is just the episode with Ryan Burge. And so um, all we do in that episode is unpack all these different profiles in detail. Cool. I think we've all had an episode with Ryan Burge. Just like you <laughs> got to have interviews for right. something. But he's, he's, he's doing good work. Yeah. Hey, hey, Jim, let me ask you, as a local church pastor um, leading in the you know, evangelical tradition, uh, the both of you um, at Orlando Grace, uh, talk about... From your perspective, uh, and maybe you have some anecdotal, you know, ways to talk about this. But for those who have left the church, um, for some, it is about like, oh, okay, I'm not receiving community, or I don't, you know, I don't, I don't agree with the teacher anymore. Uh, for others, it's like they transferred their sources of authority to other things and uh, other conservative things. So, for instance, you know, there's the rise of Jordan Peterson. Um, 
some people see Joe Rogan as somewhat conservative adjacent, um, you know, Ben Shapiro, sure. these these other sure. figures. Where are you seeing uh, people uh, transfer their, in a sense, you know, allegiance to if it's no longer the Bible, the church, the pastor? Where are you seeing people going? Well, I, I think first I want to affirm what you're saying that, that the de-churching we're seeing on the secular right is significant. I, I mean, it's just I don't think people realize how significant that is, and and people we're going to want to worship something, and so in in the absence of worshiping, uh, and, and so I'll, I don't want to be too demeaning because some this is happening unconsciously. Maybe they're not they're not they wouldn't say they worship these things, but but something takes the priority in our hearts. And, and I think especially with the volatility and the fear that we've seen over the past few years, people on the secular right who are de-churching are seeking stability and security in the things that you're naming. Um, but I, I will also say, I think people are putting their comfort and stability in their kids' athletics. I, I think this is, you know, so anecdotally, since you asked, I had a uh, a mom come up and ask me, who doesn't go to our church, sweet person, ask if we, when I would do a Saturday night service, because in the craziness, they, I think they have three kids at the time in nine sports leagues. And they, they just, Sunday morning's never available, but about once a month, Saturday night is. And uh, and I said, man, if I, I have four kids in my home, if I'm having a Saturday night service, I'm disqualified to be leading that service at this point. But um, I, I I, I, I talked to her about like where, you know, where is your, what do you want most for your children? Because if you want them to go to church and they're raised outside of the church and they're shown that sports are the priority, how are we going to have the expectation that once they leave our home, they're going to have a different set of priorities? So I actually see a whole, now again, my community, four kids in my home, this is where I swim the most. Um, but certainly, you know, going back to the beginning, we saw conspiracy theories taking people away. People who wanted us to hand out worship, uh, voter guides and worship during the 20, um, you know, 20, which uh, 2020 election. Um, and it just this stuff that we would, we would never do. And we should be able to, to have our priorities in order. Does that get at the question you're asking? Yeah, it does. I mean, it, it shows that there's, a lot of different reasons why conservative people leave the church. Some of it is very pragmatic and some of it is, uh, you know, it is um, ideology. And, and I think we're seeing that, you know, across the board, you know, at the, even in an individual con uh, congregation, we're seeing that spectrum played out. So, yeah, you talked a little bit before we came on about how some of that played out in your congregation. Just a couple of things though, to frame around that. I, I do think that uh, people can and do listen to Jordan Peterson and are engaged and involved in their local church. And, um, and actually might find uh, some of his pushback on cultural narratives to be to be helpful and part of what they believe, but their local church is the community that they're deeply committed to, just as I think there'll be some people who might listen to somebody who's more progressive on some issues of, of, of race or uh, issues of, of whatever example I could give, but let's use that example for just a moment, and still be a part of a thriving local congregation that's teaching the Word of God and focused on those things, and I know that's we're not saying that's not the case. However, we also have seen that that major ideological movements can be off ramps out of church faith and practice. And I've talked about it as the great sort. People are sorting themselves ideologically out of their churches, left and right. They're being discipled by their cable news choices, spiritually shaped by their social media, and the end result is, in some cases, they're 
they're de-churching in the process. And it's it's probably too simplistic to say left and right because there's all kinds of paths. You use sports, right? So so you know, there's a is that an ideology? It certainly is an all-consuming reality that then becomes off-ramps out of the life of the church. And you should keep in mind that the authors here, the authors of the great of the great de-churching, who's leaving, why they're going, and what it will take to bring them back are people who believe in the church, who, like us, think it's a good thing that people are engaged and involved in the church. So off-ramps out of the church. Uh, if it doesn't lead to another uh, faith community, are not our desire. Um, what you talk about a couple of things here that I, well, a lot of things that I think are helpful in the great uh, dechurching. Um, what you found is is probably um, is, is obviously extremely important. What are key takeaways and action steps for them? Because I don't want to just talk about some of the realities. And I would say too, there's a lot here. We're leaving a lot on the table. So when this uh, interview comes out, we're gonna. Uh, we'll, 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 we'll tweet it. We'll share it. We'll share some quotes from the book, that kind of stuff. But, um, but I do want to get you encourage you to get the book because, you know, a lot of, most books should be an article and most articles should be a tweet. Uh, in the case of the great dechurching, it really does have some nuance that I want to encourage you to walk through as, as well. So, so what are, what do you, what are the key takeaways and action steps? We'll start with Jim and then, and then with Michael. Well, I, you know, I appreciate the way you said that. We, we, as we're writing this book, I, let me say our goal is, you know, we're, we're basing this on real um, sociological academic research, but Mike and I are not academicians. We're not scholars. We're pastors taking this information and sorting it through the rubric that we have here. And so as we wrote this book, we actually had the opposite feeling. We felt like, man, a lot of these chapters should be their own books. Yeah. And so our, our hope is that we would just start a discussion. And we've had people come to us and say, hey, would, would you want to co-author a, a, another book on this part of de-churching? And our answer, at least for right now, is no, you go do it. This is your, this is your lane. We want people to start to build. We want to start uh, a, a national conversation. But some of the things, if, to get back to your your con your question, we, we need to exercise relational wisdom. We need to help people grow in their awareness and, and ability to minister to people. We've talked a lot in our context about how the counseling in some ways is the new apologetic, you know, because in the mm. 20th century, we were really good at just stating truth, what's true, what's true, what's true. But that came at the expense of active, li active listening that lends itself to the good and beautiful. So we spend a lot of time on that. Uh, of course, as we've said a couple times, a lot of people just need a nudge. You invite uh, uh, you know, somebody to your home, ask them about their spiritual journey, invite them to go with you. Because a lot of people were saying, under reasons they would come back, a friend invites me, there's a good community, there's a good pastor. I mean, those are pretty low hanging, <laughs> that's pretty low hanging fruit there. Student ministry is, is a really big one, investing in student ministry. I was listening to actually an, an, a non-Christian psycho psychiatrist recently talk, and he was talking about how between the ages of 13 and 25, because people, he would use evolution as, as his basis. I would, I would, I'm a nuance mine and the way I interpret it in a second, but kids, they want to leave the home. So they are disinclined to listen to their parents. <laughs> they, they, so he, his point was your friend's parents could say the same thing and they like it and it's wise and smart. Your parents say it and it's, you know, in some cases stupid. So I would say <laughs> God made us to launch sin ha having entered us. 
makes that process more volatile than it was designed to be. But this is why our children need to be in a community where they are being told the same things that we're telling them by other people. Uh, because I, I do think that, that they are made to leave and because of sin, we need to be. And not that community was a result of sin, but it's another added benefit in light of our fallen nature. Uh, we need to prioritize mental, mental health in the church. And so this can look bringing counselors who are able, licensed counselors or biblical counselors into your context that people have access to. When I'm preaching on certain topics, I'm running this by count, uh, mental health experts in our community to understand how to talk about it the right way. My wife is a mental health uh, professional. Um, you know, leaning into the holistic gospel, this gets at the true and the, the good and the beautiful part. And then we spend some time at the end of the book uh, talking about embracing exile, the norm for, this is a hard conversation because I'm thankful that we have the opportunity in Christendom to vote against things like abortion, to be able to have a voice. And I'm not saying I don't want to have those things, but we are saying the norm for God's people has been exile. Abraham, Babylon, the early church, Acts 2, this has been the norm. The global East right now, I mean, what we've experienced is unique, but there are actually a lot of blessings uh, to be had for God's people when we're exercising our influence from the margins, not from the center. We talk a little bit about this with David Platt in our episode on uh, political syncretism and de-churching. But um, I, I said a few years ago, I remember saying from the pulpit something I didn't expect to be very controversial, but I said, I think a lot of my ministry, Lord willing, if I could be here for 20, 25 years, and if I can, uh, a lot of my ministry will be walking white people through the loss of power, white Christians through the loss of power in our society. I just thought that was a that wouldn't be very controversial. It was extremely controversial. And that's what kind of got us going down this road of what do our people not understand that that statement is so scary to them? And how can we be encouraged by the word of God and what it says when Christians are not, uh, are not the main power holders in society? Oh, you know, there's a, You've just broken up such a can of worms here right at the end of our podcast. And I like we could have this conversation for for a couple of more hours because not everyone thinks that not, you know, some people think we need to fight back, push back. Um, you know, there's all kinds of proposals of what that looks like. Um, but again, this is an interview. And so let me let me and let me leave that there, because I think that's a key part of the book, The Embrace of Exile, which is actually just so people know, is kind of a recurring theme in missiological literature. And the, you, if you read the book, you'll see they're kind of influenced by some of the missional missiological literature. Mike Frost wrote a book called Exile. You know, there's all there's a, a Kidman exile. There's a lot of this language that's there contested in interesting ways in the last uh, year or so. And it'll be interesting to see where that goes. Um, Michael, last word to our audience. Um, pastors and church leaders, hearing the the two words, great de-churching, can be, maybe in some way, is, is demoralizing. They want to be faithful to the gospel, and they'll probably be willing to do that if it goes if it goes down, it'll go down with the ship for so many of them. But they also want to be fruitful. Is there a path to fruitful ministry in an age of great de-churching? Give us the last words. It, there absolutely is. And it's just, it's no different than, you know, kind of what we said kind of throughout this interview. It's, you know, it's us as pastors equipping our people with greater relational wisdom on an interpersonal standpoint. And then at, from an institutional standpoint, you know, making better local churches. So we do that when we emphasize the truth, goodness, and beauty of the gospel at the same time. So as pastors, you know, 
what does it look like to help people with their relational wisdom? You know, in, in the book, we unpack, you know, there's six key awarenesses that I think if you possess these six key awarenesses to some degree at, at, at all, you know, you become somebody who is magnetic, I think, with respect to how your faith is, is communicated to others. And those six key awarenesses are God awareness, self-awareness, others awareness, awareness of how other people perceive or experience you, emotional awareness, and cultural awareness. And I think people that possess, you know, these, these, these six things to any real significant degree, they're able to navigate hard and complex situations and conversations with, with deftness and with persuasiveness and with you know a, a magnetic quality to them and i think so many of the reasons why people have you know chosen to leave church have boiled down to you know relationships that have disappointed them and and um uh churches that have you know disappointed them and uh you know some of that is also just you know the casual piece as well as is being there in the mix but in terms of like when people are um, are, are communicating to us why they're willing to return. They're just looking for a good community and they're looking for a healthy local church. And I think when we grow as individuals and as church leaders, we help that has to start with us. We have to be, you know, growing in ourselves always as well in, you know, in these kinds of things. And when we work not just in our ministries, but when we work on our ministry and in building healthier local churches you know when we do these things these two things together on the individual and institutional level we're going to create something that many of those 20 you know 20 plus million people who are willing to return to church today are going to say yes i'm going to opt in to that again so that's the hope We've been talking to Michael Graham and Jim Davis. Be sure to check out their new book, The Great Deterching. Who's leaving? Why are they going? And what will it take to bring them back? Thanks again for listening to the Stetzer Church Leaders podcast. You can find more interviews as well as other great content from ministry leaders at churchleaders.com slash podcast. And again, if you found our conversation today helpful, we'd love for you to take a few moments, leave us a review that'll help other ministry leaders find us and benefit from our content. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in the next episode. You've been listening to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast. For more great interviews, as well as articles, videos, and free resources, visit our website at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.